Well, good morning, church family. If you're visiting this morning, I'm Ray David. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are delighted that it's now time to open God's Word. Just as we do, if you're a junior high girl, uh, there's a program for you right now out in the library, so feel free to slip out. Uh, we wouldn't want you to have to endure yet another one of our these sermons. Make your way out to the library now. All right, friends, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 16. That's what we're going to look at. And as we do, let's just bow our hearts in prayer before the Lord. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this gathering together on this, the Lord's Day. Thank you for granting us another breath, another heartbeat, another minute, another hour, another day to serve you. Recognizing that everything that we have comes from you and from your own we've given back to you. Thank you for the joy of serving you. Thank you for your word. I pray that this morning, as your Holy Spirit reveals truth in your word, that we would be led to love you more dearly and trust you more securely. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 16. You should have your finger in there by now. That's going to be our main passage this morning. But we actually have a lot of work to do this morning in order to get to that point. So without any further ado, let's get after it. We are going to fast forward from our sermon last week. If you remember last week, we looked at David's ancestral origins. In particular, we looked at his great-grandmother and his great-great-grandmother, Ruth and Naomi. By the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 16, a lot has happened in the narrative and the story of God's people. This has moved us from the time of the judges. If you remember, that's when Ruth and Naomi happened. So we've gone from the judges ruling over God's people. By the time we get to chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, Israel has already had its first king, Saul. And we are not going to take time to go through that entire thing, but I just want to remind you that Saul, David, uh, Israel's first king, was an absolute train wreck of a guy. Remember? He was a disaster. He would be, if we were going to do a character study on Saul... It would be a study on how to be self-trusting, faithless to God, and probably a really good study on bad leadership. Saul, Israel's first king, was definitively rejected by God in 1 Samuel chapter 15, just one chapter before we're looking at this morning. And so as we're sort of getting caught up to chapter 16, I want you to realize that the account of David's life began way back in the book of Ruth in the days of the judges. It began with the faithful lives of Ruth and Naomi. It began with Boaz, their kingsman redeemer. And so David's life has been established in the stock of the redeemed. David is the picture of having been saved by faith. His life has been set on a trajectory of faithfulness to God. And, and we're going to get through David's life over the next few weeks, and you're going to see that sometimes David's faithfulness was better than others. It's going to be really important for us to notice those moments when David falls short. David is going to sin. But when we read through the account of David and we see him being faithless towards God, when we see him disobeying the Lord God, I want you to remember David's stock. 
the family that he comes from. Because David, when he sins, he is acting out of character. His character, his DNA, is a lineage of faithfulness. And so he will still sin, he will still fall short. But when he does, it's outside of who he is. He's acting out of character. You know, Christian man or woman, perhaps that's a point of personal application for you. As a Christian, you still have those moments, as Steve said earlier, where you sin, you fall short. You do what Paul says in Romans chapter 7 of himself. He says, I do the very things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Who will rescue me from this body of death, O wretched man that I am? Yet Paul says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Christian man or woman, you might look at your life right now and see those moments of sin and failure and they grieve your heart. But remember this. You've been born again. The old has passed away. The new has come. You've been adopted into the family of God. And when you sin, like David, it's out of character. It's not who you truly are. Thank God for the grief that you feel over it. Back before you were born again, before you were saved, when you were heading for hell on a handcart, you didn't have grief over your sin. The grief that you feel is a gift from God. All right, let's get back to our account before I get too far off. We've got a lot to cover here, folks, so let's try to stay focused. Turn in your Bibles back to the book of Ruth. Uh, the very last chapter, Ruth chapter 4, verse 22, so we can get caught up. Um, actually, we'll start at verse 18, Ruth 4, 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abin Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. The next chapter in your Bible after this is right on the next page, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And when we try to get caught up to the moment here of, that we actually want to look at of the anointing of David in chapter 16, we have to begin in 1 Samuel chapter 1. What we're going to see quickly here in overview is another narrative, okay? another account of another family that runs in parallel to this progression that's going to lead us to David. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 3. Now there was a certain man of Ramathemzophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephraimite, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. We um, fast forward right from the account of Ruth, right into the account of a man named Elkanah. This man had two wives, we're told. 
He was a faithful man. He would go up yearly to offer sacrifices to God. He was obeying God's commandments. His one wife was fruitful and bore many children. His other wife, Hannah, we're told, had no children. But as you read then on in this account in chapter 1, you're going to discover that Elkanah loved her. This barren wife, Hannah, held a special place in his heart. Loved her. As you read through this account in chapter 1, you find that Hannah was heartbroken because of her estate. She was devastated that the Lord had closed her womb, but she didn't just wallow. She turned to the Lord. Look at chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. She turned to the Lord, wept bitterly, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. But she continued praying before the Lord. Eli, the priest, observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have neither drunk wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. So Hannah took this plight to the Lord and she made a vow. This child was born and she named him Samuel, chapter 1, verse 20. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Verses 26 to 28, she goes on to make good on the vow that she made before the Lord. Long story short, this boy Samuel is born. He ends up rising to the office of priest and judge over Israel in chapter 3. That's, by the way, an amazing account. It's going to be one of the hardest things in preaching through the life of David is moving through all the stuff in between. Um, But the account of the life of Samuel, so his mom Hannah has made this promise to God. And she says, God, if you give me a son, I'm going to give him back to you and he's going to serve you all the days of his life. God blesses her with the son. She names him Samuel. She then takes him to Eli the priest and drops him off at the temple and says, I promised him to the Lord. He's yours, right? And then the story unfolds in the chapters that follow and Samuel the young boy is visited three times in the night by a voice. Do you guys know this story? Do you remember this from Sunday school? And eventually Eli counsels Samuel and says to him the third time, when you hear this voice in the night, answer the voice by saying, speak, your servant hears. Uh, let, me just, let me just move quickly through this. You've got to read this, okay? Over the next week or so, read First Samuel and get caught up to chapter 16. Samuel goes on to become judge. And he, in chapters 9 to 10, anoints Saul as the first king of Israel. So Samuel, born to Hannah, right? He then changes the governance in Israel 
up to this point, the people have been governed by judges. Samuel anoints Saul. He's now the first king. Okay, that's what's happening. But everything goes downhill from there. And it becomes clear that Israel needs a new king. One who will be faithful and trust the Lord. Israel needs a David. They just don't know it yet. So, so your homework for this week is to read through 1 Samuel chapters 1 through to chapter 15. But before we get to this moment when David anoints the second king, King David, I want you just to see one point. The backstory of David's life is indeed the story of what God can do with the prayers of faithful women. Don't miss this. Women who turn to God in their hour of need. This is true of widowed and destitute Naomi and Ruth. It's true of barren Hannah. These women who God used mightily to bring about this moment where King David would be anointed as king over Israel simply because they dared to trust in him. Simply because in their hour of need, they turned to the Lord and prayed. I'm thankful to have those kinds of women in my life. You know, I could tell you the story. I I told you a little bit about my Nana last week. German Lutheran woman who prayed in German. Had no idea what she was saying, but there was no question she was talking to her Heavenly Father. And she prayed for me and for my brother and for all of her grandchildren daily. Or my grandma Glenn, who was this slight, frail little woman who if a windy day came, we kept her at home so she didn't blow away in a gust. But mighty in prayer. How she prayed for her family members. God hears and honors that. The account of the life of David is the account of women who pray to God and faithfully trust in him and what God can do with that. My own mother, my own wife, women of St. George's, in your hour of need, turn to the Lord in prayer for yourself and for your family, what God can do with that. You see, in the first few chapters of 1 Samuel, Hannah puts her life and her very womb in the hands of the Lord God. She says to the Lord God, if you give me the one thing I most want, I will give back to you the very thing I most cherish. She says, I will offer my son, my only son, the son that I love, and he will give all of his days, he will give his life to serving the Lord God and his people Does that sound familiar? We could preach Christological themes to this entire sweep of Scripture. Hannah trusts God, and so Samuel is born. Young Samuel heeds the Lord's calling in the night. And Samuel then goes on to anoint Israel's first king. Samuel then is used by God to declare Saul as faithless. And he goes on a journey to find the next king. 
the anointed one who will prefigure Jesus Christ. All right, all of that, and we're just getting to our passage this morning. Trust you have chapter 16 open in front of you. Let's look at it. Verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Remember, Saul has been rejected as king over Israel. So the Lord says to Samuel, How long are you going to grieve about this? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Imagine that. I was Samuel, I'd hear that from the Lord and I'd be like, what? Seriously? How long? How long am I going to grieve over this? Samuel's heartbroken. Saul's faithlessness had dashed all of Samuel's hopes on the rocks. If I was Samuel, I would have said something like, how long am I going to grieve over this? I'll tell you how long, for a long time. I was the judge of Israel, and I graciously gave up my role of leading your people to make way for this new guy, and he's a disaster. You know, St. George's, it's natural and good to grieve. But for how long? The Lord God says to Samuel, Enough. Enough. Maybe this is a word for someone here this morning. A point of personal application, not to get hung up in the past. God's, well, let let, let me unpack it this way. I think sometimes we get hung up in the past and we get caught in an unhealthy cycle of grief because we think that somehow things have gone off the rails And that God's plans have been thwarted. And so we live in this past moment clinging to what we thought was God's plan. But what if God's plans can never be thwarted by human folly? What if God is so strong that even in our weakness, he's working out his best plan? It gives us a different perspective on our lives. We look back at those moments of failure or disappointment when other people have failed us and we can grieve appropriately, but enough is enough. It's time to move forward. Have you ever noticed that your car, when you're sitting in the driver's seat, 90-some percent of your field of vision is made up of windshield and only about 5% is made up of rearview mirror? You get that ratio wrong, you'll drive off the road. The Lord God says to Samuel, How long are you going to grieve over this? Our only job as Christian men and women is to not try to figure out God's plan. See, I think one of the reasons Samuel was grieving excessively is because he was trying to figure out God's plan. He was thinking, okay, I got this all sorted out, so I'm going to anoint Saul, and that's going to be the instrument that God's going to use to bring about faithfulness in his people. And then it fell apart, and Samuel was grieving because he was thinking, how can God possibly use this? It doesn't seem like there's any way. You don't have to figure it out. All you and I have to do is trust and obey. Trust and obey. 
and so we don't get caught up in grief. Verse 1, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Fill your horn and go. The Lord tells Samuel in this moment, reload and refocus. Put oil in the horn for another anointing. I can only imagine, right? It's not captured in Scripture. I can only imagine Samuel's feelings in this moment. He probably has trepidation. He remembers the last time that he put oil in the horn and went and anointed a guy as king of Israel and how that one worked out. But the Lord tells him where to go and why. He says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse. Why? For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. He says, go to Jesse because I've provided another king. Well, here in, I think we see another strong picture of the gospel. We see that God's saving of his people is always by his provision and not by our own calculating. In some ways, it would have made more sense to us if we read that, you know, Samuel went back home and he considered all of his options. You know, maybe he busted out a, a family tree and a list of genealogies to try to figure out who would be the next king of Israel. Tried to save himself by his own cleverness. But the Lord says to him, Samuel, all I want you to do is be willing and to obey. Fill your horn with oil and go to the house of Jesse because I have provided a king. Verse 2. Samuel's response, he says, how can I go if, Saul's, if Saul hears it, he's going to kill me? <laughs> well, Samuel fears that Saul is going to catch wind of this because remember, at this moment, Saul is still king of Israel and Samuel is going to go and anoint another king. So Samuel thinks, man, if Saul catches wind of this, he's going to kill me. You've got to remember that one of the marks of Saul's faithless leadership is this pathological insecurity. So what happens? What does Samuel do? Is Samuel paralyzed by the dread of Saul? Or does he trust God? Verse 4. So Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Samuel showed us what we see consistently through Scripture. That faith is greater than fear. If you're a Christian man or woman and you hear this word this morning... I'd like you to just do the hard work of your own application, okay? I often try to apply these. I want you to just do it for yourself in this moment. Take stock of your life. Are there things about which you are afraid? Are there things that make you fearful? What are those? How do they plague you?
what has the Lord said to you? And will you be willing to risk whatever is necessary to be obedient to the Lord? That's what Samuel did. You, know, you think about some of the things that you might have to risk that God is calling you to out of obedience. If you truly trust in the Lord, there are going to be moments where perhaps you have to risk bodily harm. Well, that's possible. In today's world, though, I think it's more common for Christian men and women in their families and in their workplace to have to risk being maligned for faithfulness to the Lord. Will you trust the Lord enough to be obedient to him and risk public shame? Faith that's greater than fear. Verses 6 to 10. So, so Samuel makes his way to the house of Jesse. Verse 6, it says, When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his outer appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outer appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Okay, so Samuel's made his way to Jesse's house. Remember, Jesse is Ruth's grandson. And he begins to parade his sons before Samuel, right? He starts with the most likely to be the next king. The best and the brightest. He starts out with Eliab. And we're told that Eliab is very tall, like Brian. And everyone assumes that if you're tall and good-looking, you must be very capable and smart. Right? That's the assumption. And so Eliab stands before Samuel, and Samuel himself looks at him and thinks, wow, that's a pretty impressive dude. He must be the guy. And the Lord says to Samuel, nope, not that guy. So Samuel says to Jesse, do you have any more sons? He brings out the next one, Aminadab. Nope, not that guy. And the next one, and the next one, and the next one. Seven sons come before Samuel. And each and every one, Samuel says, not that guy. And so Samuel looks to Jesse and he says, are these all of your sons? Look at verse 11. Are these all your sons here? And Jesse said to him, mm, no. There's one more guy, he's the youngest. But he's like, out there keeping sheep, you know? Probably not the one. And Samuel says, bring him to me. In this moment, in verse 12, David stands before Samuel. Now, now, friends, don't miss this moment in Scripture. This is a profound moment. Feel the gravity of it. It is David's arrival on the scene. It's the first time that we've actually seen him in Scripture. We've read through the narrative. We've heard everything that's foretelling his coming. We've even had to endure bad judges and a bad king in Saul. We've even had to go through the seven other sons of Jesse. And all of a sudden, boom, there he is. Young David, the shepherd boy, standing in front of Samuel as the least likely candidate. Do you feel the weight of that moment? 
verses 12 to 13. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said to Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, David may not have been the most likely of his brothers, but we read in Scripture that there was something about him. He was ruddy. You guys even know what ruddy means? Some? It means that his, his skin was kind of reddish, right? It had a rosy, robust color to it. Well, of course it did. He spent his entire day out with sheep. We're told that his eyes, they were beautiful, like windows to the soul, right? It says he was handsome. But I want to point out to you that being handsome is not a prerequisite for being used by the Lord. I said a hearty amen to that. You know, we sometimes get caught in these traps. We live in a world of Snapchat filters and, gosh, I even chuckle, sometimes I'll be on a Zoom meeting and middle-aged men have these, like, intense filters on their face to get rid of wrinkles. Like, come on, man, you know? We place such a high value on this supposed virtue of handsomeness. Like, and, and we fail to realize that Jesus Christ himself was not handsome. Did you know that? But we're told in Isaiah 53. We're told that when Jesus was born, this is what Isaiah said about him. It says, he grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Listen. He had no form of, or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Perhaps that's a word for you this morning. You know, you look in the mirror and you're like, you know, I, I think I'm probably about a four. <laughs> well, your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was probably about a four in appearance too. God's purposes for your life, whether that's companionship or marriage or whatever he has for you in the future, is not tied up in a Snapchat filter. Anyway, let's move on. We're told that David was handsome and that there was just something about this young man. And so in verse 12, the Lord says to Samuel, this is your guy, this is my guy. Anoint him the king of Israel. Verse 13, the spirit of the Lord rushed on David from that day forward. Um, and Samuel, having done his duty, he just dips. Right? He, he, he has this climactic moment, and then off he goes. I even think that therein we see a picture of obedient faithfulness to the Lord. Right? 
Samuel, just without fanfare, he obeys the Lord, and then he vanishes. He wasn't using that opportunity to mug for the crowds. He didn't anoint David and then, like, do a social media post. Hey, guys, I found him, like humble bragging. He didn't stick around for everyone to applaud him and his faithfulness. He just did it and left. And so we're reminded that for the man or woman of God, faithfulness and obedience is the reward in itself. Just do it and carry on. I want to pull three quick things out of this passage. I promise they'll be quick. The first one, these are three ways in which this anointing of David foreshadows and points ahead to Jesus. The first one that I want you to note is that there is going to be a narrative gap, okay? A narrative gap between the moment that David is anointed by by Samuel in chapter 16 and the moment in 2 Samuel chapter 2 when he actually ascends to the throne. Now this is a really important point because it is a picture of our Christian life. See, during that gap between 1 Samuel 16 when David is anointed king and 2 Samuel chapter 2 when he finally ascends to the throne, David lives out a life that is in some ways tormented under the evil, wicked hand of Saul. Saul is still sitting on the throne. God's rejected him. It just hasn't all worked out yet. You know, maybe that's a picture that you can relate to in your Christian life. You can point to a day or a moment or a time in your life where God granted you the gift of faith, you were born again, you repented and believed the gospel. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon you in that moment. That was the moment of your anointing. But life between now and heaven sometimes feels like living under the tyranny of so many Saul's. Well, that's the picture of faithfulness. Some theologians refer to us living as Christian men and women in these days as already and not yet. We have been saved. And yet, on the last day, our salvation will be fully realized. See, it's a picture of that. David is anointed by Samuel as king over Israel in 1 Samuel 16. But Saul puts him through the ringer till 2 Samuel 2. And so if you're looking at your own life this morning, you think, man, I'm a Christian. I know that God has granted me the faith to believe. I know that I've repented. But all of the hardships and all the challenges that I face in my life, they cause me to doubt. Christian man or woman, don't doubt. It's exactly the same thing that happened to David. Why, even more so, it's exactly what happened to Jesus, isn't it? At the inauguration of his ministry, when he was baptized by John the Baptist, the Spirit descended on him like a dove. Sounds familiar? What happened immediately? 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, tempted and tried by Satan. The life of faithfulness demands that we recognize that there is a gap between the anointing and the fulfillment. That's the first thing I want you to see. Take heart. 
The second thing I want you to see in this, and I won't, I won't dwell on this, but um, this is David's first anointing, okay? He's going to be anointed two more times. He's going to get a total of three anointings. And you might look at this and say, why is he being anointed three times? I thought one was enough. Well, these three anointings that David is receiving are actually um, pictures of three different anointings that happen in the Old Testament. Okay, if you're a super Bible guy or girl, uh, let's just geek out for a moment. Give me a little bit of space here, okay? It's kind of cool. David is anointed three times as a picture of being anointed king, priest, and prophet. David will be anointed three times over these next couple of chapters in a fulfillment of the anointing that we see back earlier in the Old Testament of Aaron as priest, the anointing of Elisha as prophet, and as fulfillment of the anointing of Saul as king. All three of these godly offices rolled into one man, the man after God's own heart, David, prophet, priest, and king, who will point ahead to Jesus. The fulfillment as God's forever prophet, priest, and king. You see, when we read the anointings of David, we are supposed to remember that Jesus Christ will be the one who is the better David. That as prophet, Jesus of Nazareth was anointed Christ so that he would call God's people back to God's word. That's what prophets do. We are reminded that Jesus Christ was anointed as God's Messiah so that he might be the perfect, once and for all, priest. As priest and sacrifice, he is our one mediator. And he is our forever king. Jesus Christ now rules and reigns at the right, right hand of the majesty on high. And when he ascended into heaven as our anointed king, he Oh, let me geek out on this again. Humanity was subsumed into the very Godhead because he assumed bodily to heaven as our king. And as our king and brother, we now have an advocate in heaven who intercedes on our behalf with the blood still dripping from his wounds, that precious fountain that covers your sin. David will be anointed three times to point us ahead to Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. One final thing I can't stop without pointing out. The son of Jesse who was anointed as king was a shepherd boy. Now, I don't know about you. I've, I've lived in northeast Burlington for 20-some years. I don't run into a lot of shepherds here, do you? So I don't really know what a shepherd is. Or if I have a conception of shepherd, it's probably some like pastoral scene off a Hallmark card where it's, you know, beautiful and lovely and lush and the shepherd is sitting there watching over these beautiful sheep and he's maybe playing a harp or something. I don't know, right? Very saccharine. But that's not what David was up to. You see, David is going to prefigure Christ precisely because David is a shepherd. And the shepherding that David was doing was in the most harsh of conditions. He was exposed to elements that, you know, guys like 
me, we would just crumble under after a day, and David did it day in and day out to tend to the, tend to the sheep, tend to the flock. But even more concerning, shepherds were not only exposed to harsh conditions, they were exposed to wild animals. Wild animals that sought to eat and kill and destroy the sheep. Now, don't get this one wrong. When you read this account, you and I are not David. We're the sheep. Okay? We are the um, woolly, soft, delicious, vulnerable sheep for all of those wild animals that are out there trying to seek and kill and destroy us. And David is Jesus. Jesus, who often referred to himself as a shepherd, as the good shepherd. Listen to what he said in John 10. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming. And he leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters the rest. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and they know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. See, friend, it's only appropriate that God selected the shepherd boy to be anointed king of Israel. I, I don't want to steal the thunder from uh, next week's passage, but look at, look at chapter 17, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Look at verses 34 to 36. David's describing this time period when he was a shepherd. He's telling it to Saul, right? This is when he's about to head out and confront Goliath. And David's building a case before Saul as to why he, this scrawny little boy, is going to go square off against the Philistine giant. And so he's telling stories of being a shepherd, verse 34. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, struck him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall he be like one of, shall be like one of them. Anyway, it goes on. The point that I want you to see is that David being anointed from being a shepherd boy is the picture of Jesus. Because his heart is brave. David stands in the gap. He puts his life on the line for the sheep for whom he cares. And when you read this account of David, I want you to remember that you have a good shepherd. Friends, you and I 
find ourselves in the mouths of lions. We find ourselves under the claw of bears. But our good shepherd went after that lion. Our good shepherd struck down that bear. Our good shepherd grabbed the beard of the lion and delivered you and me from his mouth on the cross. Jesus destroyed the wild animal that sought to seek, kill, and destroy you. On the cross, the serpent may have bruised his heel, but he crushed the serpent's head. That's what shepherds do. And so, friends, in chapter 16, see the shepherd boy anointed king, and behold, your Redeemer, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. I pray that where there is faith like Hannah, you would fan that into flame. I pray, O oh God, that we would be a people not marked by fear, but by faith and trust, knowing that we have a good shepherd who cares for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.